Okay. All right, here we go. Move back. Lie down. Thousands of people stared at the lighted squares of the window shop windows. All was quiet inside. And out in the open, several minutes elapsed. Many lay down on the ground. A horse neighed in the distance. Someone snarled. Silence. That instant, the shed was shaken by an ear-splitting roar, followed by a series of violent detonations. The earth shook. Out of the opening in the roof, a cloud of smoke and dust rose in the blunt metallic nose of a spaceship. The roar grew as the craft bobbed up into the air and hung there as though taking aim. And then, with a thunderous din, the eight-meter sphere rocketed westward over the crowd and streaked into the reddish clouds in the distance. I like that. Welcome to Life, Death, Sci-Fi. Chris, joined by Ashoko, a son of Sky, perhaps a long-lost Atlantean, uh, a man who's left his native Earth to join us here on Mars. Eric, how you doing? Hey, what an introduction. Thank you, Chris. The question is, which race, what color, which version of the Martians are we getting? Are we yellow, red, or blue in this book? And that book is Ailita by Alexei Tolstoy. I, I didn't realize until later, but it's, this is the title. Ailita or The Decline of Mars. The Decline of Mars. Yeah. yeah. So, sounds a little bit like climate change to me. I don't know. There was a moment where I was like, oh my gosh, is, is this somehow apocalyptic? Oh, we were taking a break from all the apocalyptic tales. The end of the life on the planet, that's what they were looking forward to. But long term, they were looking over hundreds, if not a thousand years in the future. But that was the end of them. They thought. We should say, spoiler alert, <laughs> there will be spoilers on life, death, and sci-fi. We're discussing these books under the assumption that, like us, you've read them or do not mind their being spoiled. Like, the idea that they knew or they could see the sort of extinction or end times coming has me thinking about Selden and mathematically devising that in the foundation. That's one of our early books that we read, maybe not for the podcast, but we certainly have read the foundation. We should revisit that. I didn't remember it as well as I would, would like to have. And I, I think you'd maybe read the whole trilogy, but I've only read the first book in the series. Yeah, I think I have quite a while ago, but I would need a refresher reread. Okay. These leaders being able to see the future and some of it apocalyptic and what do they do when they see something like that? The Martians just said, okay, we'll just live the life we can until we can't anymore. What do you think? Would you talk setting, world building to start or subgenres? I just kind of went to subgenres because we'd mentioned apocalyptic and in some ways... Yes. That's a bit misleading. It's not really the focus here. There's a moment in the beginning. I kind of, what did you think of the whole premise of, of getting there? I kind of got a kick out of that personally. What did you think? Oh, I've got, maybe I have it uh, here. Where Gusev is talking about flying back, getting lost. Oh my God, what's going to happen? Flying by the ice crystals of the comet. I thought it was uh, really well written both getting there and back. Even the crazy math of the time differences, time lapsing, 
that's a math that stretches time. What's the formula there? You seem to suggest that the body would match whatever the ship was doing, but the ship was moving at the speed of light. The heartbeat would go 5,000 beats per second or something, which obviously that's <laughs> not possible, but this is where it falls into some real soft science, maybe fantasy. It was a good try. Come on. Yeah. Maybe it's a little bit of like steampunkish, at least oh, the way yes. it in my head. Oh, totally. I can see the inside of the ship. It's all leathered with the big buttons and the handles. Then when they land on the planet, the little helicoptery kind of planes are totally steampunk in my imagination. Yeah. You can imagine these leathery, feathered kind of wings and they look like creatures. They're inside this metallic egg. That's their rocket is this metallic egg with a few portholes. They're sitting there and it's quoting here, Los and Gusev were clad in sheepskin jackets, felt boots, and leather helmets. That's pretty good. I love this idea how it started out where there's a sign up. The story begins with a handwritten sign that engineer Los has written and just put it out there on the street that says, I'm taking off my rocket in a few, I can't remember what it was, a few days or a week. Anybody want to join me? What, what an interesting concept to just put that out there and see what happens. I, I love that idea. The first bite was a reporter who I thought was absolutely going to go. And then yeah. he ended up not going. Well, there was a Skiles. I think that he makes an appearance, spoiler, at the end. So it was a nice little echo there. I, I didn't realize this Marsha who was walking by barefoot. I thought she was going to go up. But then I, I realized later that Gusev's wife's name is also Marsha. It's not the same person. There's two different Mar Marshas. What a strange coincidence in that writing. I don't know what the point of her character was just to... She was interested in traveling. She was too young to go or something, I guess. Uh, yeah, there was something about that. Yeah, couldn't yeah. do something. We get, yeah, uh, yeah Gusev joining, and he's the, the former military officer, battle-proven character, and this is post-World War I, set in that time period, published in 1923. Pre-revolutionary for these guys. In the middle of the book, is revealed all of this information about the history of time on Earth and the history of time on Mars and how it crosses over a little bit and then things get better and fall apart. I found myself bringing in some bias as I was reading growing up as a child of the 80s. And there's so many films about Red Scare, communism. So there is this sort of revolutionary spirit. It's a little more, can we say, pure at that point? At least it's portrayed that way through Gusev. Okay. Like a revolutionary spirit. Yeah, definitely a free spirit too. I'm going to step out of that book a little bit because when I was thinking about Russians and, you know, communists and all of that, I was thinking this book about space flight in 1922, that's a piece of adventurous science fiction going on in Russia. Russia's had a love affair with space for a long time. They put up Sputnik, and then they put the first man in space. I don't know. Do they have a rover on Mars or not? I can't remember. I'm not I, sure. I thought so. Yeah, I guess I'm not sure either. They have the space station, a big part of the space station. And now, of course, you saw the first film, uh, space film, is going to be filmed in space by a Russian. Yeah, long history there. So this yeah, one fits in. It looks like they landed a rover on Mars in 71. 
Okay, so they've got the Martian exploration going too. I guess there's a silent film that was released not long after this. I think it's the first Russian science fiction film based on this. And one of the earliest, I mean, it predates like Metropolis. It's, if not the, it might be the earliest sci-fi film produced based on this book. There's just so little out there about this book. I was shocked. I always wait until I'm done to see what other people are saying. I couldn't find hardly anything, which was exciting, but also surprising. Yeah. I found a couple of things on good read reviews about this book. Yeah, they were uh, Fran's review said that it's a metaphor for pre-revolutionary Russia. And she helped me put it in a historical framework. And then Harry's review got into a little bit of the steampunks kind of stuff that's, oh, okay. that's going that's on. I thought, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, it seems like there's another number of allegories at play here. Although, I guess I didn't feel like any of them were so developed. There's hints of them here or there, but I didn't feel like it really committed one idea was exploring. I suppose we'll come back to that a little bit later. But I think the book started out as a monthly installment on the, oh, you know, was it? one of those. Yeah. Is that right? Tabloids. I didn't see that. Oh, it was published as a serial? Yes. That's interesting. It's that makes sense with the pacing going on in the story. Interesting. I didn't notice that when I was reading, but I could see that. Of course, they land on Mars. And I let me read a couple of uh, sections here, if you'll permit me. This was landed on Mars. Yeah. So the spaceship, this is, I guess, the tail end of the exposition, really. The spaceship lay in an orange-colored flat plane. The horizon was very close, almost within reach. There were large cracks in the ground. The land was overgrown with tall cactuses shaped like pronged candlesticks, which cast vivid purple shadows on the ground. A dry wind was blowing. The cactuses were now, and a little bit further in the same section, the cactuses were now taller, thicker, and meatier. The men had to pick their way carefully through the quivering, thorny thicket. Animals very much like lizards, Bright orange with scaly backs scuttled underfoot. Strange, prickly-looking balls scudded aside and leapt into the tentacled undergrowth. Los and Gusev proceeded with great care. And then one more a little further. The cactuses terminated at the edge of a steep chalk-white bank. It was paved, apparently, with ancient hewn flagstones. Dry moss hung from the cracks and crevices, a ring like the one in the field was screwed into one of the slats. We later learned that's some kind of hydration system. Crested lizards lay dozing peacefully in the sun. For me, it was right about this moment. This is early on, probably 15 pages in, maybe 20. And in my notes, I was like, oh, Edgar Rice Burroughs, the princess of Mars. I feel like I'm in the Wild West. I'm in Arizona but I'm also on Mars and there was like this great overlap. And one of the only things I found that was, that was pretty interesting was someone wrote, there's like an, on the Edgar Rice Burroughs, like ERB web uh, comparison or was suggesting that Tolstoy had read this and modeled so much of it after that kind of making the argument that, that I guess Tolstoy, while it probably wasn't translated, Princess of Mars wasn't translated into Russian, it was likely translated into, say, German or maybe French, and that 
Tolstoy spent some key years of writing early on in Paris and that maybe he'd come across a copy there. And so I don't know. I don't know if that's true or not, but I certainly found echoes of that story throughout. Absolutely. I think they're very similar in scope and characters. And I, I think Edgar Rice Burroughs is far more murderous than Tolstoy still armies perished in both books. Yeah. How can I not agree with you? Yeah. The moment that you were reading is also a special moment in these kinds of books because the writer is correct in giving that suspense to someone who is about to meet for first contact a new species. What's going to happen? Those are adventurers. Right. Are... Yeah. We get this planetary, planetary adventure. It's not quite the, the sword and planet story that Princess of Mars was. We get there a bit toward the end. We got these white male heroes, like that same story. Princesses that are the main romantic focus. Right. One, one is red and one is blue. The colors were interesting. There's so much blue in this story. Maybe a cynical reading would be that it was, if Burroughs was red, they're going to be blue. <laughs> I'm going to make them blue. Like I'm going to choose a different primary color here and go with that. I always want these landscapes, you know, like the world building. If you're a human and you're arriving and you got to describe it to somebody who's not there, cactus-like things, maybe that makes sense. It's dry there. And so that's just a way of, of filtering it in a way as a storyteller that people can understand it. In my imagination, I always wanted to look like, I don't know how familiar you are with Calvin and Hobbes is a spaceman spiff. Spaceman spiff. Yeah. Love <laughs> I was, spaceman I was, spiff. <laughs> I always want the planet to look like that. He's visited so many planets. Come to think of it, I think when he shoots, doesn't his doesn't his gun say Grok? Or does that the alien say Grok? Oh my god, it might. Stranger in a strange land. I hear that word all the time. Grok. Yeah. Grok? Yeah, it's a lot more common oh. than I realized. I don't know why I never picked up on that. I heard it in a movie a few days ago. And I I went, What? And it was some yeah. dumb science fiction movie, and they were making reference to that. And I thought, okay. I know that. Right, right. I think we can use it freely. I, I think we, we can give ourselves permission to try and, and, and grok and, and use the word grok as we grok. Yeah. <laughs> right. All right. Um, we ticked off some subgenres there. Space warfare, maybe, planetary adventure, planetary romance. Also a travel log in some ways. We were taken on an adventure. It's described to us. Science fantasy for sure. We mentioned steampunk. One difference between the two stories is these guys get a rocket, which I like a lot better than just falling asleep in the cave like Burroughs, like John Carter and arriving there. Oh, but come on. He got hooked into that system that those elder dudes can teleport, shapeshift. That's right. He yeah. Into yeah. That. So it's not just like any old cave. That's true. That's true. Yeah, being unfair there. Yeah, I haven't read those yet, but you're right. We talked about that because it came up in the movie. True. What else here? What resonated with you? What questions did it raise for you? I was happy with the way that Gusev was leading the people out of the, the dungeons of their life and into a revolution against these people who just really didn't care anymore. So you liked Gusev? He led them out, and then Los was figuring his his 
journey out, we went to fight in the streets. There, we skipped the part where they got educated, but that's after Romeo and Juliet. What was the poison, not poison stuff that was in her ring? I, I never really got, it made you look dead, but you weren't dead. What, is this true? I could be making that up. Okay. Funny. I, I wasn't even reading it as that aspect of Romeo and Juliet, but I think maybe it was. I thought there was actually real poison that sort of sickened them, but neither of them had enough to kill them was the suggestion. But now that you're saying that, that makes some sense there. Let's talk about uh, Gusev a bit. I, I enjoyed his character. He brought a lot of color to the scenes and he reminded me of the sailor character in Tintin or Tauntaun. Like, oh yeah. What was his name? Nick in 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, Pooner. Yeah, uh, yeah. And right. then, of course, there's Sergeant Garcia in Zorro. Yeah, I haven't thought about Zorro in ages. Sergeant Garcia, okay. Uh, the Gusev kind of guy, I would think. Yeah, interesting. Oh, man, that's... Yeah, I remember watching those like, black and white ones way back yeah. when. Yeah, well, yeah. that was lucky about the costume and everything. To yeah, fit. I think I watched those as a kid. Zorro. Yeah, whatever happened. Yeah, I, I enjoyed it. I, I thought I got such a kick at it. One of my favorite lines was the... Toward the end, he says, a few of his lines I wrote down where he's, he's, hello, comrade Martians, we bring you greetings from the Soviet Republic. We've come to make friends with you. He's yelling that. He's smoking. He lit a cigarette and spat. No, we could have smelled all the flowers we wanted back on Earth. My idea is, since we're the first men to come here, Mars is ours. A Soviet planet. We've come to make that official. He had a couple of lines there toward the end. As he's saving Los in the end, he's like, Gusev spat overboard. He was fed up to the gills with Mars. If he could only get to the spaceship and pour some vodka down Los's throat, that would cure him. That's just such a cliche of generalizations about Russians, but it's written by a Russian. It can't be. And, and then, of course, sure enough, they finally get on the spaceship to escape. And then it says, something scalded Los's mouth. He felt a liquid fire pouring through his body, his veins and bones. He opened his eyes, a little dusty start little dusty star was twinkling above just within reach. So all he needed was a little bit of that fire liquid to wake him up. He threw the right levers. He saved them all. Yeah, certainly a spirited character. Also, a little bit of infidelity there, but that's okay. We'll forgive him for that, I guess. No, you don't have to forgive him for that. Although it's not, I guess it's not 100%. It's such an old book. Like you wonder if this were remade. How many sex scenes would we get? What was really going on there? Because it's all a little flirtatious. We should maybe set that scene a little bit. They've landed on the planet. They're picked up, taken to a city, shown the city. It's very impressive. The supreme leader there, to Scoob, the supreme authoritarian leader, he sends them off to the countryside, his outskirts. I kind of like that idea. Zur copes this thicketed area with some growth. A little bit of shade there. I, I can picture that, these little areas little places in a countryside almost or a desert where there's a little bit more shading than other parts. Okay. Uh, they're set up there with Ayelita, who turns out to be Tuskub's daughter, as well as another minor character who is the bouncing, smoky blue, mischievous girl. And then she and Gusev have some kind of relationship there. She's head over heels in love with him and he flirts with her, teases her. Yeah, that's it. At that place, they learned the language and the history 
There's a lot of history going on. If people criticize the, the story, that's probably where this author receives most criticism for making those histories more detailed or long as they are. I think he could have gotten away with a shorter book. That's what I'm thinking. Yeah, well, that was so unexpected. That brings up one motif or theme here that I, that I am interested in, and just in terms of as we go through these in somewhat chronological order, at least that's what we're attempting to do. What is the portrayal of Mars, right, and Martians? And it seems here that with Edgar Rice Burroughs and now with Alexei Tolstoy, we get these humanoid creatures that the Martians are very human. And while there may be other aliens or there's spiders in this case as well, there's other groups, they're all very humanoid. I just kind of wonder why maybe that is. And then even more unexpected here is this, all of a sudden I was like, wait, Atlantis? The Atlanteans oh, escaped Earth and fled to, to Mars and then established a, a bloodline there. What, what I found so strange about this section where Aelita is sharing knowledge with Los was the focus on Earth and these ancient peoples of Earth. That, that story there. There was a lot of history, Earth history as well, as well. But I guess maybe that's because of the Atlantans and their connection. I think this author was trying to explain a little, you know, of that mystery too, which is, that's nice, but not really pushing his story forward as much as it could. Okay. Yeah. I criticized. I hope. No, I think we'll probably criticize some things. I, I felt the same way. I just, Von, what is it, Vonnegut? He kind of says, Kurt Vonnegut, I, I, I don't know, this is always true, but that, that as an author, you want to attempt to make every line either develop character or develop plot. And I'm not sure what the point of all that was. Was it to explore large ideas? Was it to explore religion? There is some overlap of sort of references of, he studies with Ailita for seven days. There's a reference to... I saw those. Yeah. Keep, keep going. Yeah. Yeah. For 40 days and 40 nights, the suns of the sky dropped upon Tuma. There was a flood 20,000 years ago. And then there's this sort of father-son father thing where she says, then the priests, the highest caste of Atlanteans, realized the need of a single cult, a clear and comprehensible cult for all. They built huge gold embellished temples and dedicated them to uh, the Sim, the father and ruler of all life, the right, wrathful life giver who dies and comes to life again. There's some mention of original sin and stuff there as well. So Yeah, okay. All this religion in this, I didn't have room for that in this story. So I just read right over it. It's roadkill to me. Yeah, terrible? it was spread throughout. I don't know that it wasn't just in one kind of section. There were just moments here or there. And I guess I, what's the suggestion there? I don't know. I'm not even sure what question's being asked. Although, is it a question about maybe who, I don't know, who should lead? Is it questioning things as being superstitious? I didn't get that. Okay, so if I'm writing this for the monthly, weekly paper as a syndicated kind of thing, I might want to put every once in a while something that would the power readers of my article want to read more. If religion was a strong value of mine or, or my characters, you know what right. I'm saying? Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. 
Yeah, maybe it's just a chance through sci-fi, like what happened with, say, the Twilight Zone or Star Trek, where maybe it's a safe way to explore ideas that were potentially heretical in a, within a certain cultural context. So you'd want to make that faction try to relax a little bit by saying, no, this is a story. This is a Christian story. Don't worry. But it's not even really a Christian story. Right, values, the story I meant, itself, you know. it puts out those values to some degree are present even on Mars. Yeah, look the, how, the, how strong and powerful those values are. They're even on Mars. Ooh. Yeah, they transcend planets. Yeah, there, I mean, there's a lot of interesting dichotomies or binary oppositions that are explored there, like motion versus reason, kind of capitalism versus communism. Order versus anarchy. Yeah, there are a lot of them. Ignorance there. versus wisdom. Yeah. Yes. I, I thought what it was saying there with, I guess I could read a bit of that, with ignorance versus wisdom. Never had Los felt so strongly the futility of ardent love. Never had he understood so well love's delusion, that terrible sacrifice of self to woman, the bane of man. You flung open your arms, spread your hands from start to star, or from star to star, waiting for woman, waiting for a woman. And she came and took and lived. As for you, lover and father, strange phrasing, right? Lover and father, you were suspended like an empty shell. Your arms spread from star to star. I don't know if that was repeated. I just yeah typed that up wrong. Alita was right. He should not have learned so much. He knew too much. He, son of the earth still had hot blood racing through his veins. He, he was still filled with the disturbing seeds of life. But his mind was a thousand years away in another land. He knew what he need not have known. His mind was mysteries beyond it. And I really like this quote. Make a singing bird basking in the glorious rays of the sun. Shut its eyes and try to fathom the merest particle of human wisdom, and it will drop dead. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, yeah I actually have highlighted that, that never had Los feel so strongly. I had that one highlighted too. Yeah, um, I guess there's two things that play there. One is a portrayal of women as, and maybe that's a little biblical too, as temptation or the root of some problems for men. And then I guess connected to that is the idea that through her he's drawn out of some ignorance that's too much for him to handle he can't really handle everything she's trying to tell him he's the little bird in that analogy right he's gonna yeah yeah there's some sort of futility here right that's it's speaking about that what do you do yeah. in the face yeah face the, of the whole the whole thing is built around the dying planet of Mars and what's going to happen, what the groups are going to look like at the end. So that's one of the stories that's going on. There are a few. Yeah, probably with Gusev and the, the fighting in the city. And even though it seemed hopeless, the idea to keep fighting, I had that kind of Dylan Thomas, Dylan Thomas, that rage against the dying of the night, rage against mm -hmm. the light, that, that poem of his. No, I don't know that one. Yeah, I can. Yeah, rage 
Do not go gentle. Yeah, Dylan Thomas. Do not go gentle into that good night. Rage against the dying of the light. A wartime poem. What to do when you're faced with the inevitable. That fight anyway, I guess, is the, the idea. Yeah, don't give up the ghost too easily. That was uh, Gusev's phrase. Give up the ghost. Give up the ghost. I like that. But what about, yeah, sci-fi elements, devices? Oh, there are quite a few. Stop me if I'm wrong. At both ends of the planet Mars, there are these conductors that uh, shoot out like a battery-powered uh, Wi-Fi system that you can connect into with your vehicles and other kind of devices. Okay. I, I totally know I, I totally. <laughs> I oh, that was I, awesome. <laughs> I totally don't remember that though. Yeah. Huh. How did their little fly thing, the propeller thing, yeah. powered them? Yeah, there was some, some kind of like Connection. propeller. Yeah. So that was my yeah. favorite thing. Then the steampunk flying machines. Loved them. I loved the little single saddles, the ones that you could zip around in, and then the big ones that were troop carriers. I thought that was great. Those were great. I like the steampunk kind of imagery there. I thought the screens was pretty interesting. And that's got to be pretty early in terms of this idea that they had these screens where you could actually talk yeah. to somebody else, like almost like FaceTime. And then they had, again, steampunkish, these knobs or cords, and you could change yeah. the stations. And of course, there was that sort of forbidden station. That was quite interesting. Yes. Yeah. 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 Isn't that great? They had those screens, right, where they were able to talk. Was Tolstoy the first to write about this? But certainly one of the earliest ones. So 1909 for this machine stops. So hard to know what, what they were reading, but whether or not Tolstoy had seen that. But E.M. Forrester, yeah, he's talking about something, some kind of FaceTime sort of device there. That one was like handheld. That was really cool. I'm thinking of other kind of things that science fiction has given us an eye into the future. I, right, I love those right. gadget shows just for that reason. One of my favorite things about sci-fi is just that sort of visionary prognostication of some kind where these writers, based on something happening in the moment for them, they're able to predict what might happen. There's a singing book. Uh, a singing book, yeah. That's mentioned there. It doesn't say a whole lot about it, but it's a singing book. Yeah, it's interesting. That would be such a fantastical idea for the time. Wow, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that little globe, the kind of glowing orb in her hand. And how it can is changing in the moment to reflect like kind of new knowledge. It had petrograb written across it. It almost looks like Google Maps or something. I was thinking the same thing. A little three D computer that was able to show what the planet had to offer. How far away are we from little hologram images as we're chatting or talking? I think we're not very far off. Yeah, it seems like a little precursor to that way back when. I don't think these really fit as sci-fi devices, but these ideas of the lottery drums that's mentioned, that will seem like a reality TV show or some kind of competition where everybody's watching to see with these lottery drums, who's been chosen, who's the winner of the lottery, who never has to work again in this society. An interesting idea. It was just the regular stuff that people do day by day, just trying to keep hope. Uh, there's the uh, Kavra, some kind of drug they would take to sort of relax, numb themselves. I thought the idea they would all get some 
purple spots appearing as they ate it was interesting. It was maybe just a show of decadence. I don't know. It didn't really give them visions of the future or anything. Did it do that? No, no. I don't think it was necessarily decadence. I thought it was more like a a way to like an opium for the masses kind of idea. Because that. Oh, really? Yeah. Because that Tor was his name Tor, the other guy that was fighting in rebellion. Like he was, he started eating that as it became clear that they were going to lose or the city would be destroyed. He, he starts, Gusev wants to keep fighting and the other guy starts to just eat that sort of plant. Oh, no. I, yep. His buddy. Yeah. I remember that. Just zoning out on it. Yeah. Oh, you're thinking of the other thing was the, I'm thinking of the Cabra, the Ash K was that second vision that she... Oh, no, that's not right. That's Alita has like a, this Ash K thing, the second vision where right. she inherits like the, this ability from the, I guess those, Ma, I think that was my understanding, those Magatsitals, how you pronounce that? They were the Atlanteans. I, I was listening to a podcast the other day. This was, I think I mentioned before, this Team Human. There was this episode yeah. and he had somebody on who was talking about They've done these studies of flatworms and that they will train these flatworms as they like work through this sort of maze, they get zapped if they go this certain direction and they'll keep doing it. The first generation will keep doing it and getting zapped. And then the generations after it will go like 12 or 13 generations where they don't turn left in this maze, even if they've never been in the maze before. And so the, what the kind of theory you're understanding there is that what they were talking about is as humans, we don't know what's been passed down through us. And they were talking about kind of trauma or things like that, that it could be generations of trauma that's been passed down that we're all carrying around with us. And we're only now starting to discover that we can be carrying something with us that could be generations old. Come on, you're going to the dark side there. Couldn't it be feelings and ideas that you may never have thought of before, but uh, it, they're good things and they're things oh, sure. that you can you know, continue to develop. So there's the right. dark side and the you know, light side, but I get what you're saying. Somebody yeah, yeah. never had a, a hard day in their life is depressed. How does that happen? Yeah, I didn't mean that in this book, Alita goes to the dark side necessarily. It's more about her. She has the memories of those. She's able to tap into those memories in some way. Just in that episode, it was talking about the need to deal with that or recognize unexplained perhaps traumas that people might have. Like you're saying, when it's, when it's, it's seemingly, I guess, good life without... So much hardship, but somebody's still having a hard time. Oh, there have been lots of movies, ideas around that. I guess my favorite one is with Barbara Streisand in a movie called You Can See Forever. Of course, she sings this theme song and everything, but it's about this woman who can remember two or three past lives or maybe more and how she goes to this doctor so she can get some sleep. And the doctor doesn't believe her, but then does believe her. It's Alalita here because the doctor who is helping her falls in love with her, but not with the woman who is sitting in front of him, but a woman from her past life that he can talk to under hypnosis. So it's a love story, but it can never, you know, they can never touch. 
watch Alita and Laos at the end of the book. Yeah, interesting. Okay, yeah, I like that parallel. I, I haven't heard of that movie. Interesting. Yeah, we should say a few things about Ayelita, given that it's the title of the book. What do you think? Why even title it that? That's a really good question. I don't know why they titled it that. Ayelita is called Ayelita because she's the main character of the story. I don't think really the main character. She's the love interest. She's the alien, the Martian. We get to know the best. I guess they're the aliens there. I... I try to look up the meanings of names when I remember to, and it, her name means angel, which I thought was interesting. I think from the Greek, aeol, which is angel, and ita is a, well, I don't know, in Spanish, it's smaller. I'm not sure that's the thing. This girlish figure, what does she represent? She's pure and angelic. So maybe she's a, a hopeful character, that there's some yeah. hope in yeah. her. Angels, angel of hope, probably wouldn't have been my first uh, title. That would be a good question, yeah. What would you have titled it? I don't get the sense I'd want to spend a lot of time on this version of Mars, though. Would you? Oh, no. It's a dime novel, comic book. It's got a weird history. In a way, he's talking about utopianism that seems to find a home in a lot of science fiction stories. Some kind of utopia, total different organization of humans. She's the utopian fantasy, and Tuskoob is the dystopian reality. He's making a dystopian world at the end, he's destroying everything. The haves and uh, all those workers are the have-nots. And they're not going to get anything that the haves have. Screw hmm. That's an interesting insight. So in the wrapping up, I totally was with it when his friend got Nas at the end and brought him to the station, into the scientific room where they're getting this signal and they can't understand what the signal is. And then he hears Adelita's voice saying, where are you? I'm here. Is that what she says? I think that's what she says. Yeah, he hears her calling out. Like, yeah. Oh, can he do it again? Can he make another spaceship? Can he go on another mission? I like that ending. I thought that was nice. I felt like there was some closure there. I did too. I feel like in reality, that egg probably would have been scrambled when it hit the earth near Lake Michigan. But when I read that, I kind of know where that Lake Michigan place is. It's cool. I think that probably should have landed in the water maybe, but cracked egg, these guys crawl out. He sells the story to the journalist, the publisher. It sounds like uh, Gusev reaches out to his wife, he returns. Was there, were there sequels to this? Oh, you mean, does he go back? Da 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 da. I guess that's the question. Where are you? Where are you? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Where are you? What the sci-fi?